Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Today's investors expect more than a transaction. They want a relationship. Show how your firm merges EQ and IQ with Orion's B520, a new shareable assessment developed by Dr. Daniel Crosby that provides you with emotional and attitudinal insights into clients to facilitate more meaningful investing conversations from day one. Get started today at orion.com forward slash B520. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby. I am joined today by Manish Kata. Manish is a lifelong Potomac Fund employee who started with the firm after college, programmed the initial work behind Potomac's mechanical trading systems, and today serves as CEO and CIO. Uh, he's a staunch believer that investment risk is something that can be contained and conquered using quantitative trading systems. Welcome to the show. Thank you, sir. It's been a long time coming. It has been a long time coming. So we had a conversation recently at a conference. I don't remember which one because my life is just one conference after another. And I was I was thinking when I talked to you for the first time, I was thinking that Potomac was much younger than it actually is because of the way that you seemingly burst onto the scene over the last couple of years. We're going to talk about your marketing excellence and how you've become so top of mind. But I want you to tell us a little bit about the Potomac story and and what changed kind of when you took the hell. Yeah, and that's not uh, something new. Like we, I've heard that a lot, right? Because it, you, you look at Potomac and you think we're new, and then you go look at the ADV and and the AUM and the inception date, and you're like, hang on a second. And so, yeah, this was literally my first job out of school. Circled a local paper ad, decided to go do it. Uh, like every, any other 21 year old, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life, uh, finance background, little bit of a coding background, uh, but, but really just took the job because I had nothing else to do. And, uh, that was back in 2001, uh, late 2001, early 2002. And, and, you know, we've always had this longstanding track record, um, going back, but there wasn't a lot of marketing, uh, going on. And, and, and back then. And it was hard to burst on the scene because you're competing with with a lot of larger TAMPs that are, that are out there. So uh, I worked with two gentlemen at the time that taught me a lot about the business um, and uh, was lucky enough to purchase 10% uh, over 10 and 20% over two different periods uh, over the years. Uh, and we did some good work. We, you know, we redid the company, had some good marketing efforts, started going to conferences. Uh, but but clearly something was missing. We were kind of bouncing around this AUM number for for quite some time. Uh, and, and then in 2017, uh, I got together with the owner at the time and, uh, it, you know, it wasn't a, a bad split or anything. We just came to the decision where I had uh, a certain avenue I wanted to take this down in terms of marketing, right? If, if you're a small camp, which we were at the time, you don't have the luxury of spending hundreds of thousand dollars on on ads and whatnot. Uh, you have to be creative. And so uh, 2017, we we structured a buyout where I would take over 100% of the company. And then, you know, it's one of those things, be careful what you wish for, right? You know, I was young. I was kind of, you know, saying it with my chest and, and being a little aggressive to take over. I had my way. Well, hey, pal, now you have your way. Now, now you have 100% of an RIA. Uh, go figure out what to do with it. And so 
you know, from there, we, from 2017 to 19, <laughs> there were like, and we can talk about that. There was a lot of struggles, right? And you know, nothing, n- nothing good comes of life if you don't fail a lot. And, and there were a lot of struggles, um, but ultimately, I, I was able to put my stamp and my team's stamp on this in terms of marketing and growing. So, you know, it, that that's been our path since then. But, but in ter- you know, I always tell people we're, you know, we have a startup mentality with a with a long term investment track record to to go with it. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about, let's talk about some of those struggles. So I think, you know, one of my, one of my pet peeves is a disconnect between sort of stated corporate values and, and realized corporate values. You know, there's famously the Enron values that were like etched in stone when you drove up to the facility and it was like trust communication and whatever. And, and you all really embody your values. And if you go to your website, transparency is sort of chief among them. Like this is your number one value there. And I think you're the most obvious brand that I can think of in our space that's committed to this sort of building in public idea. I'm I'm interested what that process has been like in terms of the benefits that you've seen from this very transparent, very public building in public type uh, approach. And, and, you know, you talk about a commitment to being honest about your failings and your weaknesses. What's an example of a time maybe in that 17 to 19 year period where, where you had to do just that? Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's start with, um, you know, with kind of the, the concept of transparency, right? You're the same age as me. I think we're pretty much around the same age and we, and I don't want to speak for you, at least I was brought up in this industry, uh, where it was sort of a facade, right? Suit and tie, answer and answer the question without really answering the question. You know, we we're always taught to like write vague. Like if someone asked you a question about, you know, what trade happened or what did you do? It was always, you know, say something else. Don't put put yourself into a corner where you have to then justify it. It was, it, it was all these things that we were kind of uh, taught, at least me growing up in this industry, uh, how to communicate, how to, how to present yourself in public, how to do certain things. And and when I took over, I, I kind of felt like, you know, it's harder to do those things because you actually have to sit down and think about how are you going to address a question? How are you going to say something, you know, without, you know, giving away a secret or, or the corporate BS line? And I, I kind of just made a decision that it's easier for everyone involved, including your marketing department, to literally just tell them what it is, right? I'm a big believer in running a firm and marketing with the cookbook approach where you have these these chefs, right? They have fantastic restaurants that they make a lot of money on, but then they also have a cookbook where they literally give you every single recipe. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean that you as the consumer are going to go home and all of a sudden, you know, start cooking like Bobby Flay on a nightly basis, right? So why do they give you the recipe? Because it's just part of that process of saying, hey, look, I'll be transparent. You're coming to me for my expertise. I'll show you how to do it on your own because I know that my clientele or my audience, they're not interested in, in doing it on their own. Um, and so it, it, we kind of just took the step forward where, and I think that's also a generation, it's changed as well, right? With the internet, with the fact that you can literally look up everything, why not just be transparent from, from the jump, right? If they're going to find it one way or the other, or if they're going to figure out a way to get that information give it to them right away. Right. And so I point back to this scene in eight mile. I don't know if you've seen eight mile. Uh, so eight, in, in eight mile, Eminem is in a rap battle and at the whole time they're just talking 
trash to him about, you know, he's, he's white, he's a honky, all this stuff. And then the final battle, what he does is he turns around and tells them everything that he knows they're going to say about him, right? And, and that's kind of conceptually from a marketing standpoint, don't try to back yourself into a corner where you have to explain everything. Just come out the gate and tell everything about yourself, pros and cons, uh, and, and beat them to the punch. And, and a lot, and it's really served us well because it makes the conversations a lot easier. I don't, you know, the first five minutes of a conversation, I'm not answering a lot of questions or defending anything. You already know tons about us. It's just a matter of kind of crossing the T's and dotting the I's. And so, it, you know, from, from my entire team, from the top to, to the bottom, it's, it's just answer the question, be transparent. And whatever happens, happens. You don't have to dance. Like we have a no dance rule. Don't 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 skirt around the subject. You know, from service to marketing, just just answer the question. So, um, have you seen that New York Times bot that like says the first time a word has ever been used in the New York Times? So this is the first time the word honky has ever been used on the on the Standard Deviations podcast. So congratulations, congratulations for I, that. I'm just quoting. I'm just quoting the movie. I'm just quoting the movie. <laughs> You know, I I love uh, there's a couple of things I love I love the cookbook approach and you know, I think we a lot of times misapprehend what it takes to do something right like uh, making a delicious meal is about more than sort of a list of ingredients and, and building in public is more than than sort of the recipe book for how to do it. It takes the bravery and the guts to kind of be as transparent as you all are. So I think you can give away the cookbook and and a small minority of folks are going to follow you you there. Uh, so I love that cookbook analogy. Has there ever been a time where there was something, you know, a weakness or a failing that sort of tested your willingness to be transparent about it? Oh, yeah. I mean, yes. I mean, not, not only has there ever been a time, it happens on a monthly or quarterly basis, right? You know, we're doing this on audio, but if we did this on video, look, there's, there's no two... I'm not going to beat around the bush. I, I am not the same color as the majority of my audience. I don't speak the same way. Um, I sometimes curse. I'm sometimes very uh, aggressive in the way I speak. And I get that. And that's going to rub people the wrong way. And and it's okay. You know, it, it's it, it's okay. So there's a constant pushback where, and, and I doubt myself a lot, you know, where I'm like, hey, sh should I just dance? Should I just shut up? You know, stop being transparent, you know, give them the smile, start going back to kind of the suit and tie dancing, saying what they want to hear, raising the money and, and moving on with my life. Um, so we always get, we'll get emails all the time where like, I didn't really appreciate what he said, or I didn't really appreciate the manner in which he said it. Um, and, and, and we have, we have all those emails. It's, it's something that, that is constantly coming up. Uh, is that a failure? I don't know. I think it's just a by byproduct of, of how you, you operate. Right. Uh, because I think, all, all feedback is, is good feedback, even the, even the stuff that's bad. And so, you know, you're constantly judging yourself and, you know, from 2017 to 19, I think that the biggest failure was that I, we didn't make that bold move, right? We were just a small camp that was doing the same stuff as the large camps were doing. Um, and there was no differentiating us. And what I mean by that is two old people on a beach holding hands. Uh, a, a sailboat going out to the bay with the title navigating the rough seas and investments, uh, a compass, a lighthouse. Like we've seen this stuff over and over again. And I started doing it because I thought that's what had to be done. And 
I hated it. And a big move was was bringing on, you know, Christopher Norton, our CMO. Um, and, and we can dive into that about kind of the, the, the leeway I gave him where I'm like, look, let, we're not going to get anywhere doing the same thing that these larger firms are doing. You got to differentiate yourself. Yeah. So I want to, I want to, you know, fork <clears throat> off a couple of those, of those comments there. You know, I think one reason uh, there's a, there's a couple of reasons why, why financial services has been so boring historically that, that we could talk about. But I think one of them, uh, there's some basis in, in truth, which is that, you know, money is no laughing matter. Like money, this, this is people's lives. This is things that people have worked for. You know, you and your crew, I think it's fair to say are fairly lighthearted, approachable, real, right? How do you balance that desire to be approachable, real, be yourself with not wanting to appear unserious about something, <clears throat> a very serious thing? Well, first and foremost, I think that the the biggest criminals in history of mankind have worn a three piece suit. So let's let's get that out the way right now, right? And so I think I've always said, you know, judge me on my actions. You know, yes, money is serious. I have ninety percent ownership in the company. A majority of my investments are in the same investments that off that we're offering to clients. That is where the seriousness comes in. The, the way we market and the way we talk about things is, is more, you know, the fact that we want to be transparent. And, and sometimes that comes off a little flippant, but I've just always been, you know, like it's the way we, that I want my staff to communicate. I would rather have someone look me in the eye. And even if it hurts my feelings, tell me the truth versus the smile, shake my hand and tell me what I want to hear. Um, and so this isn't something that I'm just saying, this is that we talk about this as a team uh, at, for our salespeople, for our marketing people. Tell people the truth. Tell people exactly what's going on, not what they want to hear. It's okay if some of them don't like you because no matter what you do in your life, no matter how great you are, no matter how squeaky clean you are, there will always be someone that does not like you and does not agree with you. So why even bother catering to everyone? Uh, just cater to to who you are as a firm and and the clients will come. So it, you know, I, I have a friend who recently asked me for a referral to a financial advisor and I don't, you know, I know a zillion advisors. I don't want to play favorites. I have about five that I kind of send folks to that say, Hey, look, all these five are, are worth your time. Sort of vet them yourself. See who you like <clears throat> most consistent with the way you want to do it. And I spoke to her last night and she said she had passed on one of the folks that I had sent her to. And I asked why. And it was because he was too smooth. And I thought that was such an interesting, I thought that was such an interesting comment to say that like he was too smooth. It was too sort of fluid or whatever. And I think that people really have a sixth sense for inauthenticity. I say this all the time. I'm going to write a book about it one day, like the mechanics of how people can smell inauthenticity from a hundred miles away. I've also, anytime you're building in public and, you know, I'm writing, speaking, I'm out there in a, in a public way, 99% of the feedback's good, but that 1% of the time, I've been shocked at what I've said that offended people. I mean, I consider myself a fair, fairly palatable guy and I've been shocked at what people have found offensive. So I think there is sort of a, a lot of truth to what you're saying that you should be turning off as many people as you're turning on with your marketing approach. 
and that not everyone's for you and you're not for everyone. And if you're not doing that, you're not quite doing it right. Well, you know, the old saying, and you know, my biggest struggle on this podcast is going to be not, not cursing. So I'm going to, but I'm, I told you I wouldn't. Um, the old sales saying is a, a get lost and a yes are the same thing. Uh, when you're out there talking to business, uh, talking to people about business, those are the two things you want. Not a maybe or not a let me think about it. It's get off my lawn or sure, let's talk more. And and, and if your marketing is not forcing those two answers and something is wrong. No. Well, let's talk about your marketing because you all have, have some of the coolest campaigns I can I can think about, right? There was the, off the top of my head, there was the bull and bear cereal. I believe there was a bull and bear whiskey as well, right? Was it, was it whiskey? Yeah. Well, bourbon. Yeah. Bourbon. Yeah. Look, don't talk to a Mormon dude about drinks, but yeah, the bull and bear, bull and bear cereal, bull and bear bourbon. You've got your industry gossip show, uh, which is for me, must see TV. I'm a, I'm ashamed to admit that I love it. And, uh, uh, what what's your favorite thing that you all have done of of all your campaigns? What's your favorite thing that you've done? Well, I want to back up before I get into that and say one thing. So Christopher Norton, who's our CMO, came from uh, your neck of the woods, at least the the Omaha roots, right? Was at CLS Blue Giant, did some stuff with Orion, and in terms of you know the, your kind of approach, CLS, the very buttoned up, right? But very very buttoned up, and so. He came here as kind of this creative storyteller that had handcuffs of a button-up industry. And I'm not saying there's anything good or bad about that, the state and the facts. Um, so when he got here, because we had done work in the past, I sat down with him and I'm like, listen, there's certain compliance rules that we have to lay out, right? Don't talk about the strategies, don't talk about performance. But other than that, do whatever you want. And so we would have these conversations back and forth where we would, you know, joke about another marketing campaign or, or giggle about something. And then I'd get a design a week later, like, what do you think about this? And it was, we would just run with things. Right. Um, uh, for example, the serial campaign, um, we, uh, there's a, I think it's called IPOs or something like that instead of Cheerios and some, some company did IPOs where they would, they, they, they sent that out when the company had an IPO. And I saw that I'm like, Hey, what if we put our fact sheet on a stereo box? Um, and at first it was, you know, like, what, what, what are you talking about? You know? Um, and then I know seriously, like put, put the cover and on the nutritional facts, you have the performance, the disclosure is where the ingredients go. Um, I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You know, let, let's, let's push this out there and, 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 and see what happens. Um, and, and that was probably the, the, the most fun campaign and, and, and what got the most eyes. But I will say the most effective campaign was actually something we did in, in the middle of the pandemic. When the pandemic started, everyone was at home, right? And so as a small remote company, we got together and we said, hey guys, this is our chance because our competition is not at their office in a skyscraper. He's in his pajamas at the kitchen, no different than you. And so let's start putting content out there that's real life about kind of what we're doing, right? So we would put content out about um, the the at-home experience where someone would be on a call like this and their kid comes from the side and bonks them on the head. Um, and so that was something that, that really resonated with people because we were all going through this similar situation, right? 
Um, the second part of that is is kind of these common frustrations. Like for example, if you called your cable company, right? Um, that's not a great experience for anyone in the world. So we kind of flipped it up and say, all right, let's do these videos where you're on hold with your custodian or your or your tamp, and you're pushing like one, three, nine, and then start cursing into the phone because you're tired of it. Um, and so these things that resonate with people that they do in their own life, uh, I think have the biggest impact uh, versus something that, you know, doesn't read you a campaign about someone retiring to China and, you know, riding a bicycle across the country as their retirement dream. Who cares? That's not going to rest. That's going to resonate with barely anyone in your audience. So why even bother with it? Right. And so uh, that, that was some of the early successes about doing things that resonated with the people and then and also just had fun. So I gotta I gotta go behavioral science nerd on you for a minute because I think there's some behavioral truth to the things that you're talking about here. So Robert Cialdini, sort of the expert on influence and persuasion, he's sort of uh, set forth these ways that we become likable to people, like the research on what makes one person like another. And there's all sorts of stuff that's kind of like out of your control, right? Like one of the things is, are you good looking? Like, right? We like we like people who are good looking. We like people who are funny, but the least used of these is people with whom we share a common struggle. Like we we really like people with whom we share a common struggle. And so I think what you did there was just sort of emphasize those common struggles. We we spend so much time in the industry sort of lauding big accomplishments and riding the bike across the US or the riding the bike across China. And like, that's not relatable. Like being in your pajamas in a pandemic and getting cracked in the head with your kids' blocks is is relatable, right? And so I think we as an industry would do better to just be honest about the tough stuff we're going through and try and connect on that. The other thing that I saw that that reminded me of your biking across China thing, there was a there was an A B test done in in that I that I read about recently. It was for a fitness app, like a fitness website, and they A B tested two things, and one was like a a man and a woman model with you know six packs and you know great bodies or whatever, and the other was a salad, and. <laughs> What they found is that the the abs, right, like the perfectly gorgeous models underperformed dramatically, like 53% more signups when, with the salad because it felt attainable, right? Like if you're trying to get in shape, if you're trying to get in shape and you're, you're trying to take that next positive step, like eating a salad for lunch, you can do like, you know, you're not close to the dude with the eight pack. And so I think sometimes again, we sort of hold out these really like out there goals as an industry and we need to spend more time just helping people take that next right step. And it, it's all about that authenticity. Well, so to, so to that point, before you go on, so yeah. line this up, here's our dilemma. We're a small TAM um, at the time, you know, a little over a hundred million going against these larger places, right? So how do you break through in that, right? And, and so the thought process was, look, yes, you're going to hear someone say, how can I move my business to you? At the time, we had five people. You have five people. Yes, great. What's the benefit of having five people? When you call me, I'm going to pick up the phone, right? When you email me, it's not going to be a service ticket where you get in line. You don't have to you know, call up 20 different 
um, departments to get the person you want to talk to, right? So once again, to, to, to second your point, it's about being relatable to what your audience uh, is experiencing or wants to experience. Um, and that should be what your campaigns push, not the other way around. Don't market for something that you're not. Market to, to who you are today and what you can offer. Um, and, and that's, listen, we always, we always confuse just who you are as a person and how you do your everyday life versus marketing. What's the difference? If I meet you tomorrow at, 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 a, at a sporting event or at a, at a party, I'm not going to sit here and tell you all these stories about what I am going to become you know, or, or what am I going to be in 20 years? We're going to have a conversation about our lives today and what we're going through and the pros and the cons. But then when we get to marketing, we make this decision that we are going to sell a dream, sell something that none of us are, sell something that none of our uh, employees are, or we do. And it's just kind of weird to me, like that people take it that direction versus just talking about what you do and who you are. You know, it's a it's a great point. And I think the the world of advertising and influence is full of good examples of this, like uh, Smuckers. You know, the the tagline is with a name like Smuckers, it has to be good. Like, yeah, like straight like straight up. The name is crazy. You know, instead of instead of people criticizing the name, you take the eight mile approach and just go, yeah, it's a goofy name. Like, look what we had to overcome to make you some good jelly. And Hertz, like Hertz uh, Rent-A-Car a few years back was like blasting the fact that they were number two. And, you know, it's like, okay, well, Enterprise is number one and Hertz is number two. How are you going to make being number two work for you? They made their whole thing. We're number two, straight up. We're number two. So look how hungry we are for your business. And so I think, you know, when I was on my own, when I was consulting on my own, when I was whatever... 29 when I started my consulting firm I was always so insecure and it was always like uh let me have my people look at this like there were no people it was me right and I just felt I had so much more success when I just owned being small and and tried to emphasize what I was good at and and let that be a real differentiator because you're never going to out big guy the big guys that's that saying, right? Like at twenty year old, when you're twenty, you're you're worried about what people think about you. I don't. I'm gonna butcher it. You know, something about when you're thirty, you figure out they're not thinking about you, and when you're forty, you can figure out you don't even care what they're thinking about. Um, it, it's it's, I, and I, I totally butchered that. But whatever it is, you get the concept, right? It's it's. Uh, and, and I think I think more people are catching on to that. Um, you know, as as our industry gets younger and younger, I, I think it is it, it is an age thing, right? Because you know, our, our parents, you know, you remember, I mean, you, you open a telephone book to get a hold of someone, right? I mean, that's, it's not the same, just a, a bracing, embracing the, the trials and tribulations that you go through as a person and, and as a business owner versus trying to, you know, be someone who you're not or projecting someone that you're not. So this isn't, uh, this isn't on the, on the list of questions, but I'm, you know, I'm sitting here looking at your industry gossip uh, thing in the, in the back there. What made you take the approach of talking about industry competitors? Well, you know, competitors and non-competitors. I know your industry gossip stuff gets crazy watches. And you've even joked and you said, you guys are sick. Like, right? You all are, you all are watching this stuff and, and watching it all unfold. It's kind of a bold move to talk about your peers and your competitors, sometimes in a positive light, sometimes not. 
what sort of led to this approach and, and why do you think it's a good idea? So, you know, we would have these conversations internally. A press release comes out, you know, uh, firm A acquires firm B. And we would have these conversations internally at conferences. We talk about what do you think about this company and all that stuff. And, and so, you know, Christopher and I would talk about this just because we know so many people in the industry and, and our, our roots go really far back. This is all I've ever done. And so we, it, it came from actually this uh, Gary Vaynerchuk uh, video uh, where he was doing overrated, underrated on random topics like blueberries and the WWF or whatever. And then we said, we're just kind of like, what if we kind of did the same thing? And we knew that, you know, there's been some other folks that kind of take the same approach, um, but not everything can be great news. Right, you know, and and PR pitches sometimes are nothing more than than smoke and mirrors. And we knew we were going to piss some people off, so we have to be comfortable with with just saying it ha- what what we felt, right? Like without without you know putting the lipstick on. And so we said, look, let's just start recording this and see what happens. And you know, for the first couple, you know, a handful of videos, you know, there, there was nothing, and then it started taking off because some people got mad and. uh you know, I, I remember, and I'm good friends with him now, but but Robert Sophia at Snappy Kraken, and I blasted him about this text marketing. I'm like, no one wants to get marketing via text. Like th- this is this is completely overrated. Um, and he, he came back at me, and and I'm okay with that. I appreciate it. You know, this is a conversation where we're just having these 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 high level industry talks, and and we were okay with pissing some people off. And it was funny. I had said a couple things about Orion that. Um, I don't want to say we're negative, but it was kind of what I felt, right? I, I, at the time, I thought that all these acquisitions are going to be very hard to kind of tie together because I I think it is. Um, and then I, I know Eric on a podcast kind of surprised me because uh, Rusty was asking him, like, What's, what podcast do you listen to? And he actually said yours and mine. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, man, I guess it's, uh, you know, it's... It, 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 it's okay. Like I think if you're consistent, you know, and and we people PR pitch us like they're like, hey, on Andrew's gossip, can you talk about this? And we're like, no, we're not. Um, I don't, I don't think you understand the point of the show. Stop sending me the pitch. Um, and so we we just kind of kept to that mantra that even if it's a partner of ours, you know, we are going to just kind of give you what we think about that news. Um, and and see what happens. Yeah. No. I it it's one that I never miss. I'll I'll be honest. I'm one of the. I'm one of the sickos that tunes in. I appreciate it. (laughs) Now, you know, we, we, we said we were going to talk about marketing and markets today. So let's, let's move to markets a bit. Your whole investment lineup is, is sort of built on the thesis of, of limiting loss and and conquering risk. There's lots, you know, everybody wants to do this, right? I mean, this is sort of what everyone's after. You take it from a, a, a technical analysis standpoint, and I'm curious why you think the technical analysis is sort of the right tool for this job. Well, I, I think it's, you know, what's the uh, men lie, women lie, charts don't, men lie, women lie, math doesn't. You know, we take this approach where, where you're, the opinions just don't matter. Um, and so throughout time, people asked you what you think about the markets with last year was, you know, Ukraine and Russia. And then now it's bank failures and all these different things. And, and, and sort of what the transparency thing is, I have no clue. I have zero idea. But from a, from a coding perspective, can I put this in a system? Can I test it? And if I can, uh, you know, that's going to give us the answers as to you know, where we want to be invested and, and, and what we want to go after. And so 
um, in a similar way, you know, when we talk to our advisors, I open up the coding system and I show them what the systems are and what we're buying and why we're buying it from a math perspective, not from a from a coding or from a from a financial perspective. So, just sort of divorce it from the opinions, the speculation. Stick with the math. Stick with the charts. Let it rip. So yeah. So early on in my career, I remember I, I would write all the commentary, and uh, you know, I was. I don't want to say forced, but I was strongly encouraged to write about things like economic, you know, jobs reports and ISM numbers and all these things. And I knew deep down that it had absolutely nothing to do with the way we managed money, right? But we were taught to write this commentary about these things that are out there that are top of mind for investors that want to know about these. And so we, I, I, I always question, like, why am I writing about this when it has no bearing as to how we invest money? Um, and so, you know, we've just, once again, taken that approach where, you know, we're math based, we're quant based, we code everything, we test everything. And if it's not tested, then, you know, basically in our opinion, it can't be trusted. Yeah. Well, there's a ton of, uh, there's a ton of behavioral finance research to, to suggest that a systematic way is the right way to do it. I'm a, I'm a big believer in that, in that myself, just, just a rules-based approach generally is the right way, uh, to think about running money. I want hold, on, hold on. I want to. I want to. I want to give you a part B of that because yeah. what I find is disingenuous are the people who say that their way is the right way and that's it. Right. So we've made it a point to say this is how we manage money and this is what we do. However, there are other avenues that are that you should also pursue. Right. And our, our presentation at the Orion Asset Conference was this whole concept of um, salt, fat, acid, heat. Right. There's that Netflix show that talks about that and I'm kind of an amateur chef. So I always tell people if when you cook, if you hit those four things, there is a decent chance your meal is going to be good, right? Um, if you can get those four things. But in investing, we, we see we sort of have this dogma approach where it's 100% tactical, 100% passive. Um, it's same in politics, right? It's my way or the highway or this way. And ultimately, the, the answer is always some blend of both, right? And, and so while we are a tactical manager, and, and, and we promote that, um, I don't think the right answer is 100%, just like I don't think the right answer is 100% passive or alts or anything else. Yeah. No, fair enough. Uh, what's your what's your go-to dish? Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm Indian, uh, and so a- anything that's that's hot, and not Tabasco hot, because that stuff is is worthless, um, but anything that's that's hot, hot, Southeast Asian Indian food, that's, that's, what, I, um, that's what I lean towards. Okay, so we've got uh, we we have just been to the DeKalb Farmers Market here in Atlanta, and we are cooking some Indian food tonight. I'll let you know how it goes. Um, and have you been following the Tabasco? Have you been following the Tabasco debate on FinTwit? No, no. What is it? I don't know. I'll turn. I'll I'll I'll, I'll put you in touch with the Tabasco debate that's going on among some <laughs> Canadian Canadian advisors. I've been roped in uh, to roast Tabasco for being useless. So I'm glad I'm glad it made it to the show too. Yes, it's not hot sauce. So one of the things um, I, I'm looking for your help here with this last sort of markets question. You know, when we talk about behavioral finance, there's there's clearly multiple applications of behavioral finance. One one of them, and I think the one that gets the most play in our industry, is around the sort of client communication: keep clients in their seat, keep clients happy, keep them invested huge like i mean there's a there's a huge benefit to that of course i talk about it all the time i think one of the things that doesn't get discussed enough 
is how product selection, asset allocation itself can be a positive force in helping clients to stay the course. And the very the very way that we construct portfolios can have a material impact uh, in whether or not a client can stay the course. How do you think about that and, and sort of what's the role of product design in bringing about positive behavioral outcomes for clients? Uh, so first and foremost, I don't think it's useful to spend the time creating material to keep clients in their seats because if a client's going to leave you, a client's going to leave you. If they're going to make bad decisions, they're going to make bad decisions. And I say that knowing that, let me, let me back up. It, yes, it's valuable to have that education, um, but that shouldn't be your, your, your overarching goal because people are going to do whatever people are going to do. Um, but secondly, I think to me, it comes down to creating a portfolio as best as you can that matches their risk profile. Um, now there's a million ways to calculate risk. You guys are doing some cool stuff with the behavioral side. Um, you can take anything you want, something, any, it, as long as you use something, right? Uh, that says, okay, what are my comfort levels with risk? And then backing in and creating a portfolio that fits that. Um, and I think that's the key to, to making sure people see through their investments, right? For example, if someone's not comfortable with risk, but you're going to put them in 100% passive buy and hold because you believe that, fine. But the first time you have a 20, 30, 40% drawdown, you know, that person's going to end up bailing. So sh so should they should it be in that to begin with, right? So I think that the sweet science behind this is allocating that portfolio to the best of your ability with what the client's feeling is about risk. Um, now, that can be an entirely different podcast as to how to define the client's feeling about risk, which is, you know, that's some of the work that you were trying to uh, uncover with, with some of the new products. But but those are the, th that's my two cents. It, and I use max drawdown for everything. I don't use any other risk statistic. To me, max drawdown is the only thing that matters because it's the actual pain that that investment has endured over time. And to me, if you have an investment that has a max drawdown, you can uh, you can bet that it's going to happen again, right? And so to that's how to me that's how you line up portfolios is is thinking about you know what kind of historical risk levels the client's willing to tolerate. Yeah. So first of all, stop trying to put me out of a job by just saying people are going to do what they're going to do. <laughs> so, no, no. So that's why I know I wanted to clarify that. I think here, here's my point. You obviously have to have ways to match personalities to risk profile, right? Yeah. But I see a lot of people spending 90% of their marketing efforts behind this thought process of, you know, keep, stay with it, stay with it, don't give up, don't give up. I think it's at that point, it's too late. It really comes down to the allocation that you decide at the beginning and, and the work you do behind their risk profile and that matters. You know, it, it, people are going to do what people are going to do after that. Yeah, it's it's interesting. So Mor Morgan Housel has this sort of framework that he just made up. Like, admittedly, he just made it up, and I'm just using the thing that he made up further, sort of reifying it in the world. But you know, he says, you know, sort of like 80, 10 percent of people are just super disciplined. They're gonna just they they don't need any help. They're just gonna like crush it, buy and hold, be great forever. Eighty percent is kind of the movable middle. And then 10% of people are just degenerate gamblers and like there's kind of no fixing them. And that's sort of been anecdotally my observation too. I do think there's something that can be done with the middle. There's some, I I think we need tools and and I'm trying to work on some for, de 
determining if folks are in that sort of 10% left tail of just like there's no helping them. Uh, maybe that's like a, a dim view of humanity, but I do think so. Not, no, listen, we have we don't have an actual tool, but we have red flags in our CRM. If an advisor signs up and within the first couple of weeks, they ask us, what's the performance? Yeah, Red flag, right? And so we have all these red flags where it's like, no matter what you do for that person, no matter how much you educate, it, it's it's gone. It's as good as gone. And so, you know, it, that's important. I don't know, you know, that's for the smart people like you to quantify um uh right now it's just kind of a red flag entry point no right on so look you've you've shared a lot of great stuff with us but i gotta be honest this is the part i'm most excited about i'm i'm taking a page out of your own book your your industry gossip segment has this underrated or overrated piece that you've talked about you're a maryland guy so we're gonna do underrated or overrated maryland edition i know you're sure. in the area with apologies, some of these are from Baltimore, but I, I feel like you're still positioned to comment on these things. So are you ready? Absolutely. Okay. Underrated or overrated, the Maryland flag? That's easy. Underrated. Probably the greatest flag in the country, hands down. I'm I'm trying to think. It's got to be top five. Um, California's great. New Mexico's great. Trying to think what else. Ohio's cool. But definitely a top five flag, underrated. I'm with you. Yeah, Old Bay. Yeah, underrated. That I mean, it, it goes on everything. How can you not live without Old Bay? And in fact, I will judge you if you have don't even know what Old Bay is. And there's a lot of people that don't. Yeah, do do better, folks. What about do have you had old Have you had Old Bay hot sauce? Of course. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, it, it's not my, it's, I, I think I stick to the seasoning. It, it wouldn't be in my, my top three or four of hot sauce, um, selections. Um, but you know, they gotta, they gotta spread the product, uh, catalog, you know? Okay. So this one, this one's going to be controversial. Uh, the national anthem, uh, came from Francis Scott Key in, in Maryland in, in near, near Baltimore, right? National anthem, uh, underrated or overrated? Yeah. I mean, it's overrated. I, and uh, your actions speak louder than you being able to sing the song. Okay. Wow. You heard it here, folks. Camden Yards, underrated or overrated? Underrated 20 years ago. Now it's a, a dumpster fire. So, you know, when it first opened, honestly, one of the one of the best stadiums, the experience, the way they designed it in terms of fan experience. Um, but it, you know, it's an old stadium. It needs to be torn down at this point. It's funny. I don't think I've probably been in five or six years, but man, I've been two or three times and it was a gorgeous park i loved it but i mean it's been it's been a few years but could have changed but man i i loved it when i went blue crabs yeah this is underrated i mean you can't once again another another judgment point of mine if you don't know how to eat a blue crab we, we can't be friends yeah the wire underrated top 10 top five show of all time omar recently died i saw it too uh by the way uh probably one of the top five characters in any show and very true, by the way, <laughs> if you know anything about Baltimore. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great show. Uh, I learned in my, in my uh, exquisite research for this show that, that Maryland is home to the longest escalator in the world. I can't believe it's not one that I go down on the, on the subway sometimes here in Atlanta, but the longest escalator in the world, it belongs to Maryland, underrated or overrated. Underrated. It's pretty terrifying. It's actually in Wheaton, Maryland. Um, and, uh, I'm not, I, I don't do heights very well. So you grab, you grab onto that handle pretty, pretty tight on your way down. 
if it's bigger than the one here and and, and it is, I, I get dizzy on that thing. I cannot, I cannot. Yeah, I pass. Last, last one. Uh, Christopher Norton's Range Rover, underrated or overrated? Overrated. This guy, this guy wears driving gloves. All he has Range Rover dog tags and keychains. It's just, just absolutely horrible. Well, we love you, Chris. Hope you're listening. Listen, man, this has been great. Uh, it's it's fun to have a voice like yours in the industry. Uh, I love what you're doing. Keep it up. If people want to learn more about uh, you and your firm, where can they go? Uh, Firm-wise, PotomacFund.com is the website. If you want to know more about us, obviously all the social handles, it's easy to find. Um, and uh, yeah, that that's probably your best bet to, to learn, learn about us. All right, man. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, sir. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries, and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.